Good morning. It's good to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day. For those of you that are wondering where Jack is, he is away at a men's retreat, probably eating way too much food and doing all kinds of disgusting things. But, but he will be back, I believe, next week. But I do have the privilege of being in the pastoral rotation right now. So my name is Brock Boldy, and I am the children's pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. It's always good to come over here to Big Church, though, and just to, to be able to open up God's Word. And, and really... You know, since I'm not going through a series or anything, I'm kind of getting a chance to pick random things. And so, really, you guys are just hearing stuff that I need to preach to myself. So, hopefully, you'll be be benefited by it. But um, before we go any farther, why don't we just go ahead and open in a word of prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you are a good God. And we thank you for times that we can gather together with the saints to open up your word and to just hear what it has to say. And Father, I pray right now that you will just remove all distractions. I pray that whatever burdens different people might be carrying along with them right now, Lord, I pray that they would be able to hand those over to you to set them aside and to really just sit and and be at your feet and to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you will find a way to work through this broken and cracked vessel in such a way that your word will go forth, Lord, with with power and with clarity so that uh, you would be put on display and you would be glorified. We thank you for uh, today, and we pray, Lord, that we would honor you in all that we say and do. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to be speaking this morning on on holiness and... (laughs) You know, I, I, I don't come as somebody who's arrived. You know, it's not like I've, I've reached sinless perfection and here I am now that I've reached this to, uh, you know, impart all of my wisdom upon you. Uh, really, I, this is an area I need to grow in. And so I'm coming to you as a fellow pilgrim that is trying to grow himself in this area. So as I, I preach and, and teach, please understand that I am doing this um, not as one that has arrived, but again, just as a fellow pilgrim. So Please take it as that and, and don't feel like I've got my act all together up here. Um, that is not the case. You know, but we live in a day and age, though, that, uh, that seems to think a little about the subject of holiness. And, and really, in an effort to be relevant and, and real, I think is what it kind of comes down to. I think the intentions may be real. Many within the, the church um, have no understanding, no desire whatsoever to to grow in in holiness they they look at holiness uh, almost with disdain i mean they it's almost like it's, it's something that that's bad something that's puritanical or or, or works based um, to them you know there, there's there's no grace there's no grace in holiness uh, just a bunch of rule keeping a bunch of obedience to the law i mean that's kind of how they see it and and really anyone who's who's trying to strive after holiness well, you know, these are people that just uh, are legalistic and, um, you know, they just need to learn how to relax and not take life so seriously, not take themselves so seriously. So for many, there, there, is, there is nothing sacred. I mean, there is, there is nothing that is to be approached with reverence. There is, you know, just this, this sense of just live your life however you want to live it and, and forget holiness because it's not attainable, so let's just do, do what we're going to do. Let's just live naturally. The problem with that is there's nowhere to be found in, in, in the Word of God. That is something that 
God's word simply does not endorse. But just to kind of prove the point that the, there doesn't seem to be much reverence, much holiness uh, being pursued, you know, I don't know how I get on these lists, but uh, I get this email every few days. It's from something called GodTube. I think it's the Christian equivalent to YouTube. It's a cleaner version. And, you know, generally they'll send these, um, these emails and they have these different video clips on them. And, uh, you know, they, they, they run the gamut, you know, between what they are. Some are, are really funny. I've gotten some good chuckles out of some of them. Some of them are sad, and I just delete those right away and get them out, especially as I'm getting older. It's like you see these father-children things, and just, no, i got to turn it off. Um, and, you know, so they have that, and then they have some, some really, truly inspirational ones that, uh, that are on there. I mean, for the most part, you know, I would label them as harmless. I would say that they're, you know, they're... they're they're simple. They're, they're, you know, nothing too major. But, you know, uh, I, I did get one the other day that that just kind of drove home to me this point that there is very little pursuit of holiness within the church or, or some churches anyway. And so um, I thought I would just kind of share that with you. I didn't want to show it up on the screen because it really wasn't worth showing. But but I want you to kind of picture, if you could, a congregation maybe like like ours here gathered together ready to celebrate uh, some baptisms. You know, there, there's this the sense of people are getting baptized. These, there were younger boys that were kind of getting baptized, probably uh, pre-teen to early teen. And, you know, he just uh, the one pastor just got done finishing baptizing one of the boys, and he gets out, and, and then we're waiting for the next one to come in. And the next thing you see in this, this video is you see this blur, and then you see this big, huge... Spat, splash out of out of kind of nowhere after this blur now the blur was this next preteen to early teen boy and the splash was the result of his decision to cannonball into the baptismal now you know if the video were to simply stop there we could simply write this off right as just uh, some youthful ignorance you know Young man doesn't really kind of understand the importance of what he's doing. So, you know, we could just kind of leave it at that. But unfortunately, the video doesn't stop there. It continues It continues to kind of go on, and, and it continues for quite some time. And as you watch, and more importantly, as you listen to all that transpires after this baptismal cannonball, uh, you can't help but be struck by the lack of holiness in the congregation. Again, I don't know the congregation. I don't know anybody in the congregation. All I know is that a young boy decided it was a good idea to cannonball into the baptismal so that he could get baptized. And really what you heard in the background was nothing but laughing and you know, really what should have caused a wave of shock uh, produced nothing but a wave of laughter. Now, don't get me wrong here. I, I, I've been known to cannonball with the rest of them. I've splashed many a people with a cannonball on vacation this summer. I, I got a few people from my family with some cannonballs. So I'm not against cannonballs. All right? I, I'm a firm believer in cannonballs. They're, they're a lot of fun. All right? But I, I, I would never cannonball in the baptismal, and I hope nobody here would, and I hope none of us would uh, would would laugh out of control hysterically because somebody thought that was a good idea. Okay. We need to understand that there is a degree of holiness that you and I are to strive after. There is a place for cannonballs. 
The church baptismal is not one of those. But again, it just kind of paints us this picture that there is very little reverence, very little uh, pursuing of holiness that goes on within the church. Okay? Now, Christians should be the most joyful, the most happy people that this world has ever seen. But again, it's got to be in the right context, right? It's got to be uh, so we're, that we're showing reverence to God. And again, we can, have, we can have fun while we're doing that, but we just got to make sure that we keep the reverence towards God, that we're pursuing holiness. Because you and I are called to be a people that put Jesus Christ on display in everything, everything that we say and do. And again, my fear is that um, we're, we're letting too much of the world spill into to the church and, and holiness is kind of being left uh, on the side and, and something that is not being pursued. You know, I'm in full agreement with C.S. Lewis when he wrote this. He says, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. You know, true biblical holiness is a, is a beautiful thing. I mean, there's nothing stuffy about it. There's, there's nothing arrogant about it. There's no holier-than-thou sense about it. I mean, for true biblical holiness, if you think about it, it displays the character and the personhood of Jesus Christ. It puts Jesus Christ on display for the world to be able to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm different. You know, I'm not better than you. I'm, I'm not all full of myself, but I am living in such a way so that Jesus Christ is put on display in and through my life. And I want you to be able to see him, not me. I'm not concerned with what you think. I'm not concerned with whether you think I'm cool or hip or anything like that. I'm concerned with pointing you to Jesus Christ. And that needs to be our thrust. That needs to be what we try to do. But sadly, I I fear that the visible bride of Christ has lost her desire for holiness. Many who pour into the church today have no understanding whatsoever of what it means to be holy, and thus they do very little, if anything, to promote holiness or to promote the advance of God's kingdom. But you know, if you ever just stopped and thought, how different would our church be if we all got really serious about pursuing holiness, about living holy lives? How different would this community of Burbank look if this church and other churches got serious about living holy, set-apart lives, people would be drawn to that. They would see a difference. They would be drawn to that. How different would our world be if the church of Christ got serious about living holy and set-apart lives? Now, although writing to a British audience in the 19th century, J.C. Ryle's words, I think, ring just as if he was writing to us today, it's amazing. You know, I mean, when you think about it, this was back in the 19th century. But he writes these words, and it just sounds like he's writing about us today. So let me share them with you. He says this, I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended by, to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or, contra- or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. Worldly people sometimes complain with reason that, quote-unquote, religious persons so-called are not so amiable and unselfish and good-natured as others who make no profession of religion. Yet sanctification in its place and proportion is quite as important as justification. 
sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless. It does positive harm. It is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of the world as an unreal and hollow thing and brings religion into contempt. How true. How true this is. The text we're going to be looking at this morning issues to us a call to holiness. And it is a call for the people of God to live our lives differently from those around us. It is a call to separate ourselves from the evil that surrounds us so that we might pursue a life of righteousness. Again, a life that points to Jesus Christ. It is a call to live and love like Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. And as you're turning in your Bibles there, let me give you just a little bit of background leading into our text just to kind of bring you a little bit up to speed so you can kind of clearly understand the passage. Now, the letter is written to a group of persecuted Christians that find themselves for a variety of reasons scattered over a rather wide area. And yet, in light of their less than ideal circumstances, the Apostle Peter encourages them to live in light of the hope that is theirs in Christ. He, he encourages them to look to Christ, to see all that he suffered, to see all that he went through, so that they might follow him and, and have hope in the midst of their difficulties. And in this letter, Peter talks much about the sufferings of Christ, and he, and he points his readers to look intently upon Christ's example. There's a great deal of doctrine that he crams into this, this, little, this little letter. And yet he wants to show us really how this doctrine isn't just to kind of fill our minds. It's not just something that is to impress people that we can kind of rattle off when we have our theology all together. This, theolo- this, this doctrine, this theology is to, is to impact how we live, the way we conduct our lives, the things that we say, the things that we do. And so he gives all of this, this doctrine, all of these great truths, and then he charges them to live this doctrine out. So really, in the verses immediately preceding our text, Peter reminds his readers to to remember some things. He says, you know, remember the greatness of the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. That is huge. He tells them about the mercy that God has so graciously poured out on them. He talks about the imperishable and the unfading inheritance that is reserved for them in heaven. Things, things that angels had longed to look into. He reminds them of all of these things and he tells them all of these great truths. And then he comes to our verse. And basically what he's saying is that now in light of these great doctrines, in in light of these great truths, this is how it's to affect you. This is how it's to play out into your lives. And he says this, picking it up in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy holy. The call to holiness, brothers and sisters, is ever before us. As followers of Jesus Christ, 
we are commanded to be holy. And if you and I are to gain any ground in our efforts to answer this call, then there are certain steps that we must take in our efforts to become more like Jesus. And really, it is in our text that we find three objectives that we must strive after if we are to grow in holiness. And while these objectives are by no means exhaustive, this isn't the only list that is out there. I'm just trying to look at the text. They are essential to our growing in holiness, to our pursuing holiness in a way that will bring glory to God. Let's begin by looking at objective number one. And objective number one is this, a complete hope in Christ, a complete hope in Christ. If we are to grow in holiness, then we must strive to have a complete hope in Christ. And we find this objective laid out for us in verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at this sentence, there is really only one imperative, one command, as it were, that that we need to hold to. And that is our need to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The other two statements may look like um, commands, may look like imperatives, but really they are... Um, they are participles and uh, basically prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit are participles that are meant to pave the way for having a complete hope in Christ. So let me just kind of rephrase it a bit differently. Let me just kind of turn it around a little bit so maybe you can, you can uh, get some, some additional clarification here. The way in which a Christian goes about developing a complete hope in Christ is by preparing his mind for action and keeping sober in spirit. The way in which a Christian goes about developing a complete hope in Christ is by preparing his mind for action and keeping sober in spirit. Now, bear with me here for a little bit because we're going to look a little closer at these two participles, remembering that they are going to eventually bring us back to our first objective, which is a complete hope in Christ. So just... Bear with me as we develop this a little bit. Now, let's look at this first one, preparing our minds for action. Preparing our minds for actions is not something that just happens, right? I mean, you don't become a Christian and you don't all of a sudden just wake up and go, wow, my mind is prepared for action, right? It's kind of like working out. You don't just kind of wake up in the morning and say, wow, I'm, I'm ready to work out. And that's and there, you're done. No, you have to do something, right? You have to exert some effort. You have to you have to you have to strain and 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 put yourself out a little bit. It's hard work. So when we're told to prepare our minds for action, we realize that this is a call for us to to work. The phrase in the Greek is literally translated gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And and the image that would have come immediately into the the hearers of of this phrase in Peter's original audience would have been that of a man gathering up his long flowing garment that he would wear and and kind of taking it up and tucking it into his belt so that his legs were freed up and that he would be able then to really get down to some strenuous labor, either running, picking something up. If he had the long flowing gown, he would be hindered in his movement because the gown would only stretch so far. But by picking that up, tucking it in his belt, he was girding up his loins to get down to some serious work. And so Peter uses this imagery to tell them to gird up the loins of their mind. 
to get ready to work hard. This girding of the loins made it possible, again, for the man to carry out difficult tasks that was before him. And, and again, if we had to think about Peter writing to us today, you know, we could maybe think about, all right, roll up your sleeves, get your sleeves ready. You know, you're going to do some scrubbing. So let's roll up those sleeves. Let's get down to some business because we got some work that we're going to do and we're going to work hard. And if you get those sleeves there, they're going to get in the way. They're going to get all messy and it's not going to be pretty. So whatever terminology you want to use, though, to think about the fact that you are to be preparing your mind for action, it is a work, it is something that is a labor, it it is not going to just happen. We need to be a people that are resolved to know God's word and to do what it says. And this is going to take effort. We need to be a people that are ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. But again, this isn't going to just happen, brothers and sisters. You're not going to be able to tuck your Bible under your pillow. You're not going to just leave it on the, on the coffee table and say, well, hey, I'm in, I'm in the room. That's the, it'll work. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll rub off. No, you have, to, you have to open it. You have to read it. You have to study it. You have to ask God to give you insight into it. It's a, it's a work. It is a work. Now, Peter also tells us to be sober in spirit. Now, as it appears in the New Testament, this term has come to signify complete clarity of mind and its resulting good judgment. So to be sober in spirit really is, is just to, be, to have complete clarity of mind and resulting good judgment. Now, here I think lies the problem for many of us right here. I think this is, this is one of the critical issues right, right here, if we look at this. Our inability... To think, to think clearly so as to render good, sound judgment. I mean, if you and I are not careful, we can become, we can become intoxicated with, uh, with the things of this world. So much so that we, we, we really fail to think clearly. And therefore, we, we don't act appropriately because we're not thinking clearly. And while the group that Peter was writing to was suffering under the weight of, of persecution from the world... It is my concern that many of us are suffering here right now under the weight of seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon still speaks to us today, even though these words were written over 150 years ago. He says this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Many of you sitting out there right now are under the influence of the world. You're intoxicated by all of the promises of joy, all of the promises of pleasure that this world makes to you. Your minds are not clear because you've lost your spiritual concentration. The music you listen to clouds your mind more and more. The movies and the shows that you fill your mind with day after day, week after week, are starting to taint your understanding of what is right what is pure, what is lovely. Your desire for leisure pulls you further and further away from the church. And although you deceive yourself into thinking that the weekends are good family time, good times to get away, you are pulling yourself away from the body of Christ. And you're not being able to think rightly and to make sound judgment. Men, how sober is your thinking as you stare and lust at that image on your computer screen? Women, how sober is your thinking 
as you fight and struggle to control every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. Young person, how sober is your thinking as you attempt to exert your own will over that of your parents? You see, too many of us have bought into the, the lies of this world. We've become intoxicated by, by its promises. And really, it, it's time to, that we sobered up. It's time that we started thinking biblically about, about what we are we're, we're to be pursuing, how we're to be living in light of what Christ has done for us. We need to fill our minds with God's truth, with His Word, so that we might make good, sound judgments that will ultimately bring glory to God and will point people to Him and His kingdom will be able to expand based on that. But again, we're, we're, getting, we're getting intoxicated by the things of this world. We're letting the world fill our minds. We're not working hard. We're not being diligent to guard our minds. We're just letting whatever in, whatever comes in, we're letting it in and and we're okay with it. You need to understand, we are to be sober. We're to be sober so that we can think rightly, so that we can think biblically. And get this, as we prepare our minds for action and as we keep sober in spirit, we'll begin to develop, this brings us back to our first objective, we will begin to develop a complete hope in Christ, which is the very thing that Peter commands us to do. Okay? The more you and I labor to fill our minds with the word of God, the more we guard our minds from the intoxicating lures of the world and the more we will start to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hope that is being referred to here, though, is not some kind of wishy-washy or half-hearted hope, but rather it's a hope that conveys a a real sense of confident expectation, an expectation that is so strong that it moves you to act on the basis of it. This is not merely a matter of emotion, but a matter of the will. I mean, this is something that you are so thoroughly convinced about. You are so certain that this is going to happen that it actually impacts how you live on a daily basis, the choices that you make. This means that you and I, as we labor to think biblically, will have a confident expectation on the grace to be brought at us brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ in other words we will eagerly await Christ's second coming whereby we will fully realize the complete fulfillment of all that is promised to those who have placed their faith in his perfect work and person as believers you and I currently live in this unique state don't we I mean, we have some of God's promises that are made to us, right? We are, we are new creatures. We are given His Holy Spirit. We are, 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 are new, and therefore, you know, we're different. But we still struggle with our sin, right? I mean, as new as we are, as wonderful as everything is, there's still this battle that goes, inside, that goes on inside of each and every one of us. So in one sense, there's this already that, yes, we've received the promises of God, but there's this not yet because we're still fighting against these sin-cursed bodies. We still are, are, are waging war, as it were, in these bodies of death. I mean, I kind of the, probably the best way I think about it is, is like guerrilla warfare, right? I mean, Christ has come in and the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. We now have a new ruling, 
uh, uh, power that is over us, that is in control. But our old sin nature, our old self is kind of like a guerrilla warfare, right? And it kind of hides in, in, in the bush and looks for those opportunities to strike. And it's no longer an authority. It's no longer the one in power, but it's still lurking around looking for its opportunities to strike. And when it strikes, it can still do some pretty significant damage. This is kind of where we're at as Christians. In one sense, yes, we already have the promises of God, but in another sense, not quite yet. Not like it's going to be. Not like when Jesus comes again and we can finally shed these, these sin-cursed bodies, right? We can finally be done with these things and, and, and get new bodies, bodies that won't run after sin, bodies that won't desire the, the things that these bodies do. Bodies that will, will think rightly and act rightly and won't wear down and won't break down. So in one sense, yes, we, we, we have the promises of God. But in another sense, not quite yet. And so that's why we, we eagerly look to Jesus Christ's second coming. There, there, there needs to be a hope, a confident expectation that a day is coming whereby we will no longer struggle with our sin. A day when, when Christ will return and His grace will be fully realized and we will be set free. And we will be able to, to worship Christ uninhibited with no internal struggles whatsoever. We, we need to be looking forward to that day. Not so that we can escape the hardness of life, but so that we can be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uninhibited, free to worship Him without junk going through our minds without all kind of things happening. That'll be something that we all need to be looking for. Because you know what? If you and I really believe that Christ is coming back, it will affect the way that we live, won't it? I mean, if you really believe that Jesus is coming again, it will impact the way that you live. And you know what? If it's just kind of, well, I kind of believe it. Well, that's not really the hope that's being talked about here. The hope that's being talked about here is a confident expectation. Because again, what we believe about Jesus coming back will impact how we live here. If we truly believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, then you know what? We're going to seek Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. If we really don't believe that, we're going to just go through the motions. It's going to kind of show up. Put the little check mark on the attendance card. Yeah, I was here. But then we're going to go on the rest of the week and not going to really think much, out, much about Christ because, you know, that's kind of a Sunday thing. So again, what we believe about Christ coming again will impact how we live. And you and I are called to have a confident expectation at Christ's second coming. If we have our complete hope in Christ, we will pursue holiness because we know that is what he pursued. We know that's how he lived and it should be our greatest goal to be like him. You see, Peter knew the importance of complete hope and that's why he tells and calls all believers everywhere to prepare their minds and to think soberly so that they can pursue Christ and they can experience what he's already done and what he will complete on the day that he returns. You see, complete hope will never become a reality without diligent, sober thinking. 
So having covered the first objective, we're now ready to move on to objective number two. And objective number two is this. It is a right understanding of ourselves. If we are to grow in holiness, then we need to strive to have a right understanding of ourselves. Now, this objective is found in verse 14, and it reads like this. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. We begin this objective by looking at a positive statement, and that positive statement is this, as obedient children. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you is the fact that all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, get this, are adopted into God's family. Are adopted into God's family. I mean, as such, they become, they become God's children. And they become God's children with, with all of the rights, with all of the privileges that go along with that. And you know, as when we look at the Greeks and the Romans in the first century, uh, adoption was a rather common thing back then. An adopted son, if somebody was, you know, if a son was adopted into a family, um, basically had the same privileges as the naturally born son in the family. I mean, even to the point of sharing in the inheritance. So, I mean, adoption wasn't one of those things to where, you, you know, you were kind of relegated to a second-class citizen. No, you were brought into the family. And you were given all of the rights and all of the privileges that went along with that. And this is what we see in Christ, right? We are adopted into God's family because of what Jesus Christ has done. In Romans eight fifteen through 17, it says this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And John 1, 12 through 13 tells us this. It says, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become Children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I mean, have you ever stopped and, and, and just kind of pondered the magnitude of what it means to be a child of God? I mean, to be adopted into God's family? And again, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you know, it's not like God adopts you into his family because you're so lovely. Right? I mean, it's not like God sees you and goes, oh, that, that's, uh, that's the one I need right there. That one's special. If I don't snatch that one up right away, boy, they may get away, and I don't want that to happen. No, you know what? God adopts us into his family, not because you or I are so lovely, but because he is a loving God. This is what he does. This is the reality for those that have placed their faith in Christ, they are adopted. They are brought into God's family with all of the rights, with all of the privileges. And again, get this, brothers and sisters, if you, if you believe that, if you, have, if you have a hope in that, it'll affect how you live. But if you really don't believe it, if you just say, yeah, that sounds really nice, but I, I'm not buying that. It's, just, it's not going to change. Nothing's going to change. You have to have a confident assurance that this is what has happened. You need to believe these things. You need to understand that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are adopted into his family. 
He calls you to come into his, into his family. He calls you his children. You become children of obedience since you're now found in Christ. You're God's children. And as his children, you are to walk in obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is not your obedience that will make you God's child, but rather it is that obedience that shows or demonstrates that you are his. This is how it is. And while God's children, yes, we are still tempted, are we not? We still are tempted and we fail in this life. We blow it. But again, that's not, that should not be how we're characterized. That should not be how we're seen on a regular basis. Yes, we're going to fail, but God's children are characterized by obedience because they have God's Holy Spirit working in them. You know, there was a time, was there not, when you were, when, when you were driven by the desires in your ignorance? But God has pulled you out from that, right? He has pulled you out of the kingdom of darkness and he's brought you into the kingdom of light. He's moved you from being a, a child of disobedience a child of rebellion, and he's brought you to being a child of obedience, a child of righteousness. But there was a time when we, we lived in ignorance, when we were driven by our desires solely. And that brings us to the negative statement regarding ourselves. Peter writes this, he says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Brothers and sisters, how many of you are still being conformed to the lusts which were yours in ignorance. How many of you are still being consumed with those things that will never satisfy, that will only, in the end, leave you feeling guilt and shame? How many of you are are still going after those things, thinking that, you know what, this time it's going to be different. This time I'll, I'll, I'll have that that. That satisfaction this time. This time it's going to be different. How many of you are still going after that? If you're a child of God, that's what you formerly were in ignorance. But God has pulled you out from that. God has called you out from that. Grasp what God has done for you through his son. Ask him. Ask him to give you a proper hatred of your sin. Plead with him. Beg with him to give you to give you the ability to change those desires that were once yours in ignorance so that you might walk in obedience and do all that he calls you to do, that you might find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction in him rather than pursuing those, those desires that leave you wanting. You know, but God doesn't adopt us into his family and just leave us there, though, does he? This is the amazing thing about God. He's a good God. And as he adopts us into his family, he gives us all of the spiritual resources that we need so that we can walk in obedience to his word. The question you need to ask yourselves is this. Are you availing yourself of all that he's given you? Or are you trying to gut it out in your own strength? Are you trying to live the Christian life in your own strength rather than crying out to God, humbling yourself and asking God, to change your desires? Are you striving to hide his word in your heart and in your mind so that you can think rightly and you can do all that he's called you to do? God's given you all the spiritual resources you need. He's put his Holy Spirit in you as a seal to show that you are his. 
Are you using what he's given you? Too many of you are content and toying around with your sin. Too many of you are okay and thinking that it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you out there think that whatever you're dealing with is not, is not really that bad compared to you know, some friends that I know that are going through this. I mean, yeah, sure, I got my sin issues, but you know what? I don't, I'm not as bad as, as this person over here. I mean, they're really messed up. I'm, I'm a little messed up, but they're really messed up. I mean, I think some of you might be approaching things like that. I mean, you're, 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 you're viewing your sin in comparison to other people rather than seeing sin for what it really is. And, and, and I want to plead with you, stop thinking this way because this is unbiblical thinking. This is wrong thinking. Think rightly about your sin. See your sin for what it is. I mean, because all sin is a rejection of God's rule. It's rebellion against His holy authority and a rejection of His loving kindness and of His care. At its very core, it is an effort to replace the kingdom of God with your own self-seeking, self-promoting, self-glorifying kingdom of you. And if you ever begin to doubt the seriousness of sin, I mean, all you need to do is you just, just go to the cross. Just, just look at the cross and see how serious sin is to God, how much it matters to Him, how opposed God is to it. Jesus Christ came to live the perfect life that Adam failed to live so that He could offer that perfect life up on our behalf because of our sin. Jesus came to do for you and for me what we could not, cannot ever do for ourselves so that we might be reconciled to the Father. You know what? Our sin is so offensive to God that He was willing to crush His perfect Son so that all who believe in Him might have everlasting life. That's amazing. God is that opposed to that little sin of yours. And he was willing to crush his perfect son because of it so that you could be reconciled to him. I mean, if you've never considered the depths of your depravity, if you've never rightly seen yourself as a sinner in need of a savior, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your trust in in the Lord Jesus Christ, then know that the Bible tells you that today is the day of salvation that today is the day for you to hear His voice and to stop hardening your heart. Today is the day to respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who makes it very clear in His Word that He is the way, the truth, and the life and that nobody, get this, nobody, I don't care how good they look, I don't care how sweet they are, nobody gets to the Father except through Him. He is the only way. He is the only way. Now, for those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that have seen the depths of your depravity and yet experienced the even greater depths of God's love as he's adopted you into his family, understand that you're having a right understanding of yourself will help you to grow in holiness. You having a right understanding of yourself will help you to grow in holiness. As a child of obedience, you will strive to grow in holiness because this is what God's children do. 
As a regenerate sinner, you will strive to grow in holiness because you know the futility that was once yours as you plodded along in the muck and the mire of your sin, as you played with your sin, as you sought your sin, you saw where it got you, you saw the emptiness of it, you will want to grow in holiness because you know where sin will lead you. Peter knew the importance of his readers having a right understanding of themselves, both positively and negatively. And as we praise God for who we now are in Christ, and as we thank Him for saving us from the former lusts that were once ours in ignorance, we're able to pursue holiness, not so that we can earn God's favor, but rather out of gratitude and love for our incredibly gracious Lord and Savior who has given us undeserving people so much. Now, having covered the first and second objectives, we're now ready to move on to the third and final objective, which is this, a proper view of God, a proper view of God. If we are to grow in holiness, then we must strive to have a proper view of God. This objective is found in verses 15 and 16, and it says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let us begin by looking at the phrase, but like the Holy One who called you. You know, there's a lot that we learn about God as we come to understand the fact that He calls believers to Himself. Let us never forget that it is God that initiates our salvation. It is God that initiates our salvation. And He he does this not because He sees something within us, like we said, that makes us worth calling. Oh, i got to have that one. No, He does it, He does it, because of his grace, because it's who he is. You know, and some people, some people really get their feathers ruffled over this. Some people really take offense to this, this, this teaching, this biblical teaching. They can't believe that God would choose one person, but not, not another. I mean, they grumble and they complain about how unfair it is that, that he would do something like that. But really, I mean, if you stop and kind of ponder that and you stop and think about that, it's kind of a rather absurd argument because, I mean, at the end of the day, let me just ask you, how many of you, how many at the end of the day want fair from God? I mean, do any of us want fair? I mean, do any of us want to stand before God and say, God, I want you to give me what I deserve and I am not going to leave here until you give it to me. Is anybody willing to stand before God and say that to him? No, because you know what? If you got what you deserved, (laughs) it'd be over. It would be trouble. Each and every one of us has fallen short. We don't want fair from God. We want grace. We want mercy. The wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. A death where we're separated from God for an eternity in a place called hell. This is a real place, brothers and sisters. This is a place that none of us would would even want to remotely think about going. And yet, this is what each of us deserves. This is what we should get, and this is what we would get if we demanded fairness from God. You see, God would be perfectly just to send each and every one of us to hell. And this would not be unfair. 
right? Because this is what our sin has earned for us. So based on this, would it be unfair for God to call some for himself? I mean, it needs to be noted that this calling does not merely mean invite. It's not like God saying, hey, you know, if you've got nothing better to do, you want to want to come into my family. No, it's, it, it conveys the idea of God's power in bringing people from darkness to light. Again, transferring them from the one kingdom into the other. Okay. God calls them out from that one kingdom and puts them in his kingdom of light. And if God were to call anyone to himself, it would be a great act of love and a great act of mercy because whoever he would call would be a sinner that would be deserving only of his judgment. So the question should never be, why does God save some and not others? But instead it should be, why does God save anyone at all? I mean, in God we see someone who is truly gracious and loving, but this is not all that we see. In our text we also see that God is holy. It says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes these words about God's holiness. He says this, We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard, end quote. Stephen Charnock says this about God's holiness and the existence and attributes of God. He writes, The holiness of God is his glory, is his grace, is his riches. Holiness is his crown and his mercy is his treasure. This is the blessedness and nobleness of his nature. It renders him glorious in himself and glorious to his creatures that understand anything of this lovely perfection. Holiness is a glorious perfection belonging to the nature of God. Hence, he is in Scripture styled often the only, the Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel, and oftener entitled Holy than Almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. End quote. The believer's call to holiness is firmly grounded in the character and person of God. We are called to be imitators of God, especially as it pertains to his holiness. God has called us out of the world of sin so that we might be a people that are set apart for him and for his glory. He's saying, look, I've pulled you out from this kingdom and I've brought you into this kingdom. Quit trying to run back into this kingdom. You can't go there. You belong here now. And therefore, since you are in my kingdom, you are to pattern your life after me. You are to live as I live. You are to be as I am, holy. As those that have been adopted into his family as children by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are to represent him in every aspect of of our lives. We are his ambassadors here. And we need to be set apart, not segregated, but set apart. We need to find a way to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to live our lives in such a way that the people that are in the world and of and of the world, they see a difference in us. 
And we need to point them back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Peter drives this point home by letting his readers know that it is the word of God that is to inform us about God, not our own thoughts, not our own opinions. The written word enables us to discern certain truths of who God is. See, we know God is holy. Why? Because his word says he is. His word is is that objective standard that we always come back to that shows us who God is. It helps us to know who God is, and it keeps us from, from making a God of our own making, right? We come back to his word and we see, okay, who is God? And, you know, this is so important because we are living in a culture today that is, that is constantly remaking God into, you know, their own image. I mean, it's not uncommon to find yourself speaking to somebody who that would consider themselves to be spiritual, maybe even saying that they're a Christian and yet have little knowledge about the God of the Bible. Really, I mean, what many people are doing is they're taking little bits and pieces from this religion and from this religion and from this religion, and they're kind of taking the parts that they like, and they're, and they're making God whoever they want Him to be. But you and I can't do that because God has revealed Himself in His Word. God has shown us who He is in His Word. And his word tells us that he is holy. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Brad Kelly sent around an article that appeared in the USA Today paper, and it was entitled, More Americans Customize Religion to Fit Their Personal Needs. It, it was pretty scary to read. I'm just going to read you a little, a little excerpt from it. This is one part of the article, and it talked about a woman that had uh, drifted through a few mainline Protestant denominations in her youth. She had found a, a home in the peace and unity message of the Baha'i tradition for several years and then was drawn deeply into Native American traditional healing practices. Yet, she also still calls herself Christian. I'm a kind of bridge between, between cultures. I agree with the teachings of Jesus, and I know many Christians like me who keep the Bible's social teachings and who care for the earth and for each other. I support people who do good wherever they are. I mean, isn't it amazing? That somebody who has adapted all of these other falsities would still want to kind of lump themselves into Christianity, would still want to kind of call themselves Christian? Even though the God that she is pursuing, the God that she is worshiping, is nowhere to be found in the pages of this book. She has made a God in her own image. She has made a God to her own liking. And that God is a false God. See, Peter knows the importance of Scripture shaping a person's thoughts about God, which is exactly why he quotes Scripture to help us to better understand the necessity of holiness. The Bible helps us to have a proper view of God, which in turn helps us to grow in holiness. Well, this morning we were able to look at three objectives that we must strive after if we're to grow in holiness. They were this. Number one, a complete hope in Christ. Number two, a right understanding of ourselves. And number three, a proper view of God. It would be my prayer and hope that your commitment to these three objectives will speed you along in your pursuit of holiness. It would be my prayer that these, my pursuit of these three objectives would speed me along in my pursuit of holiness. Let's pray and just ask God to... Uh, just bless the rest of our days. But we do have an announcement that uh, Mr. Wildy and Wildy's going to make as soon as we're done praying. But let's, uh, let's pray and then stay in your seats, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for our time to be able to gather together this morning and to open up your word. And Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified in, in, 
in the, the teaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you will work in, in many of our hearts and help us to be a people that get serious about striving after holiness. Lord, not so that we can have people notice how godly we are, but that, Lord, so that we might be able to point them to you and that they might be able to see what a great God you are. We thank you for loving us, Father. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. May we live every day in light of what he's accomplished for us. And Lord, may we live to make his name great and to just have uh, hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for the great love that you have shown us through your son. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.